What's up everyone, my name is Aryan. My name is Ali. And welcome to this episode of So You Want To Be. We hope you're having an absolutely amazing day and we're thrilled that you could spend part of it here with us. Nancy Philpart founded an early stage investment fund called Bell Michigan that invests in woman-owned businesses. Her career started in STEM at Wayne State University. She joined General Motors where she had a long and successful career before making the jump to where she is today. On top of being an investor, Nancy serves as a professor at Wayne State University, and today we have Nancy Philippard. Nancy, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing really well. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure for you to be on our show. Um, I guess I guess we can we can jump into that first question. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? What do you do, and and how did you how did you get there? Okay. Um, so currently, I'm at a stage in my life where I can do a lot of things um, because I have, um, you know, some of the flexibility to be at a point where I can pursue those things that I care about. So uh, at this point, I am uh, the general partner of an early stage venture fund, Bell Michigan Impact Fund, that invests in women-led, women-owned, or at a minimum gender-diverse startups uh, in a variety of, of areas. And, and our focus is to provide access to capital uh, for women or, again, gender-diverse companies because, you know, the data is pretty compelling that women don't have access to capital uh, to the same extent that men do. So that uh, takes up a good portion of my time. Um, but I also love education and I also love to interact with students. So I am um, an adjunct professor at Wayne State University and I teach in both uh, the engineering school and the business school. Thank you for that introduction. Is there any defining moment or inspiration that led you to develop Bell and take that transition from engineering to entrepreneurship? Um, you know, I would have to say when I left, so I spent uh, the majority of my professional career as an engineer and as an, and an executive in the automobile industry. And when I decided to leave my corporate job and, you know, kind of pursue stage two or, you know, the second act of my career, um, I originally thought that, um, you know, given my experience um, and my background, that I would be a natural fit for corporate boards. And so I was going to, you know, do phase two um, as a corporate board of director. And I started to become very frustrated that, um, you know, I would interview for board positions or get recommended for board positions, um, but nothing actually happened. And it's kind of the age-old conundrum that we oftentimes see that, you know, in order, they were looking for uh, a director with experience, but how do you get experience if no one will ever give you that first chance? So I quickly kind of shifted my focus and said, you know, if, if I'm not going to be able to, um, you know, kind of enter the, the current system, uh, what can I do, um, you know, to make a change to the system? And, and I got very interested then in working with startup companies, particularly those um, led by women or gender diverse teams with the thought that, you know, we'll start these companies right from their inception with a focus on diversity, both in their management teams and on their board of directors. And so that, that was really my impetus for uh, getting, you know, starting Bell um, and getting involved in the, in the startup ecosystem. Yeah, 
I can imagine that the stuff you're doing as an engineer um, has some similarities to the stuff you're doing now, but I'm sure there's a lot of differences. How did you learn what you were supposed to do when you when you started um, the, the the investing firm? How did you um, make that make that transition? Well, you know, the good thing about being an engineer is you learn problem solving techniques. Um, but I do have to say it was a humbling experience because when I left my corporate job, um, you know, I was pretty senior in what I did. Um, and it doesn't mean that I knew everything, but, um, you know, I had a lot of responsibility. I had a lot of people working for me that, uh, you know, were also experienced. And when I moved over into the venture world, I really didn't know anything. And so it was a rather humbling experience, you know, given my stage in life to start over. But it was also exciting. And so how did I learn what I learned? Um, you know, I did a lot of reading. I went and met with people. You know, I tried to take uh, advantage of, you know, there's lots of things that go on in the startup ecosystem, you know, to help people, you know, learn different aspects of the business. And I have to say, when we started our first fund, which would have been back in, uh, I believe, uh, 2012, um, myself and my partner had never run a venture fund before. But we put an advisory board together. And so we had about six people that were very experienced in the venture space that we convinced to be advisors to us and, you know, that we could call at a moment's notice and that we met with, you know, maybe once a quarter to get our questions asked. And the other thing we did is we made sure uh, that the attorney that we worked with um, was, and she's still our attorney today, very experienced in this space. And she was very gracious in doing some handholding for us. So it was really not being too proud to ask for help when you needed it. Mm, that sounds amazing. Uh, if we could backtrack a little though, and maybe go back to your college days, uh, what was your education? Um, so I got a bachelor's degree in industrial and systems engineering um, at Wayne State. And then I went, but, but I was fortunate when I was um, going to school because co-op programs were very um, prominent. I mean, it seems today most schools do summer internships, but we did co-op, which meant it took me five years to graduate, but at the um, conclusion of my sophomore year, um, you know, I would work half a year and I would go to school half a year. And so I got a lot of hands-on experience um, at the same time that I was pursuing my degree. And because of that hands-on experience, then I was able to go immediately, you know, for a full-time master's degree. Um, and then once I finished that degree, you know, I kind of launched myself, uh, you know, back into the working world. Mm -hmm. And do you think like your education played a role in your career development today or and also you brought up co-op and so do you think co-op is I mean like the the hands-on experience is more important than the education itself? Um, you know, I think both are important. You know, the one thing I can say about the engineering degree and, you know, probably if I go back, you guys would laugh at, you know, what I got taught in an engineering degree, you know, 40 years ago, because uh, most of it has entirely changed. Um, but the thing that I think the education teaches you 
is how to think and how to problem solve. I mean, I, I think, and I, I encourage my own kids with this, to, you know, even though um, they're not necessarily all practicing at engineers, but go after an engineering degree because it teaches you to think. It teaches you a systematic approach to problem solving. And, you know, and that's not exclusive to an engineering degree. There are other degrees that do that. But I do think that you have to marry that education with hands-on application. So I mentioned, you know, I teach at, at Wayne State. And, and I tell you, I, I don't give tests. Um, I give projects. And my reason for that is, first of all, I want students working as teams. Because there are very few working professions that you're going to get into where you're a lone operator. Um, you mostly have to work with people. And you have to work with people who you don't get to pick, who are different than you. So you have to figure out how to work well together. Um, I'm very interested in global education because teams today, you're going to be working virtually with, potentially if you're working for a multinational company, you're going to be working with people from around the world. So you've got to figure out how to work with different people, yet to still be um, goal-oriented because you're, you're working on a task or a project that has measurable deliverables and has to be done in a certain amount of time. So I find giving hands-on learning experiences, whether that's project-based courses or, you know, the opportunity to do co-ops or internships, I think is absolutely critical for students. Yeah, I, I think I'll, I want to stay on this this topic of education just because uh, you are a professor. Can you maybe talk a little bit about like why you decided you wanted to to teach some classes at Wayne State, and then maybe uh, and I know you talked about giving projects in, instead of tests, but uh, maybe dive a little further into into your how the way you teach your class might be different than the way you learned when you were in college, or or maybe the same. Yeah. Um. So why did I teach? I mean, I've always love to teach. I, I have taught on and off at Wayne State even when I was working full-time um, in my engineering uh, career. Um, I taught for a few other, um, you know, Lawrence Tech for a while, um, Center for Creative Studies, um, because I think that, um, you know, teaching can be a very inspiring, it can make a difference to a student. You know, so sometimes, you know, we really, the way we teach things really turns kids off from learning and frankly we have to learn our entire lives i mean it doesn't matter how old you are and particularly with the way things are changing today and the pace pace of change you know if you stop learning um you're not going to be very successful or even more importantly you're not going to you're, you're going to become irrelevant so i have always felt um i've always enjoyed teaching and feel that if you can um teach in a certain way, you can really inspire students and bring out the best in them. And I, I tell you, I've had students who, you know, people have told me, oh my God, this student is terrible. They're not going to do very well. And then I take that as a challenge is can I find something or some way to get to that student um, that, you know, is going to help them be successful. So in any event, I just, I've always liked teaching. Um, so is the way I teach different than the way I was taught? Um, probably. I mean, I have to say, I think back even in my university career and I had, you know, some very good instructors who, again, you know, where we did a lot of hands-on learning um, and a lot of interactive learning. 
Um, I have to say, you know, when I was a freshman and a sophomore, you get into these big classes and you, you know, sit and you have somebody lecture at you for an hour and you don't ever get to ask a question. And then you have to go on the odd days to small groups and ask your questions to somebody who's not even the instructor. I'm not a big fan of that kind of model, even though, you know, I went through that mostly as freshman and um, as a freshman and sophomore, but when I got into my junior and senior classes, the classes were small and much more hands-on and so on. Um, I would have to say my philosophy of teaching is this. Interestingly enough, even before COVID, I taught most of my classes online, but I refuse to teach an asynchronous class. If I'm going to teach online, I want to do like what you and I are doing. I don't mind that we're not sitting in the same room, but I want to be able to do real-time communication. And so, um, you know, I have taught online. Um, I teach a lot at the graduate level or the upperclassmen level. Um, and oftentimes students are working. Um, you know, one of the things at Wayne State, even uh, juniors and seniors oftentimes are working, um, you know, so some are working full-time, graduate students are almost all working. Um, and so, you know, the online just makes it easier for everybody. But I typically always make a big part of, you know, a student's performance is participation. We do a lot of case studies. We talk a lot about, you know, material and how does it look for, you know, we bring in current events. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we do project-based courses. I'm doing something very, very cool. I did it last semester and I'm doing it again. Um, because of my global experience in the automobile industry and frankly, a lot of mistakes that I made, um, I think every student before they get their degree, if they're gonna work for a multinational company, they need to have a virtual cross-cultural experience. So I partnered with a university in Germany and we mix our students together. So my American students are on a project team. We're doing a course this spring called Innovation and Sustainability. And those students are working in cross-cultural teams between you know, German and US students on a project. And they have to figure out, and we're doing some training. I mean, we're doing some cultural intelligence work. We're looking at cultural differences between Americans and Germans and how that might look while they're working on projects. But the end result is, you know, at the end of the semester, they have a project that they have to present together um, and, you know, they will be evaluated as a team on how successful they are in executing the details of the project. So I think that's like really, really fun. At first, students are a little hesitant, but I think, you know, the feedback we got last semester when we piloted this was really, really positive and students said, you know, this was really, um, they learned a lot and it was a great experience. They have to figure out how to navigate time zone differences. You know, Germany is six hours ahead of us. So, you know, when do you do your team meetings? What communication tools do you use? How do you, you know, we do everything in English and, and the, you know, international students are not as strong in English. So how do you share responsibilities as a team to build on strengths instead of saying, you know, we're just going to, parse this up into four pieces, everybody does their thing and we staple it together. So it's been a great experience and, uh, you know, very interesting, um, I think, uh, new learning opportunity for students.
That's, that's that's amazing. I really hope uh, some of my professors at Michigan State are doing a similar thing because I can imagine that a project like that would be a lot of fun. Um, but you, you've definitely had a lot of students come through. I'm sure you a lot of students come through your class. Um, are there any traits that um, you see in a student that um, that shows that they're maximizing their college experience, like maximizing their learning and, and maximizing the opportunities um, in the Wayne State ecosystem? So what I see in the students that I think that I enjoy working with, but I think that actually are setting themselves up for success, are those students who are less worried about the grade and are just curious about wanting to learn. Um, you know, it's unfortunate, I think, in the university culture is, you know, students are very fixated on grades. I will tell you this. There's a point, do grades matter? Yes, to a certain extent, but there is a point where, you know, the differences between a 3.5 and a 3.7 or even a 3.2 and a 3.5, for employers, they don't care. Um, and so, you know, it's better to take advantage of learning what you can learn. And I always tell students, I mean, God, college is the time when you should be exploring stuff. Um, you know, take a course in something that, you know, might be a little bit different because it exposes you to something that you hadn't thought about before. And I know, again, depending on what curriculum students are in that, you know, generally they're, it's packed with all the things you have to take for that particular degree. But, you know, I guess my advice would be is use this as an opportunity to learn and stop worrying about, you know, the kind of the transactional issues of, you know, I need to get a 4.0 or something like that, because it just, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing advice. I, I, I totally agree with you. I think it is a little difficult in this, in this just like college competitive ecosystem at times to like build that mindset. But I think once that mindset is built, it really, really sets you up for success. Um, and look, so let's jump forward now, um, back to what you're doing today. Um, can you maybe run through, I guess, like maybe a day to day, what sort of, what sort of projects you have to work on? Um, and how, how have you enjoyed your experience so far? Yeah. Um, so I am very, very much like the work of, of running the venture fund. So typically what we would do is my fund, we hold something once a month called office hours. So any entrepreneur can sign up um, for office hours and that's a, an opportunity, you know, really for a mentoring session. Now, many entrepreneurs will, entrepreneurs will come because they think they might be ready to start raising money or they want to know what they need to do to raise money or whatever. So, um, so we will initially, you know, mentor, advise, um, and ultimately, we use that when we see promising companies, that's a way for us to screen and say, yes, we think you are ready. If we think a company is ready, we will invite them to come to an investment meeting. And that's where they will do a formal pitch. And at the end of that pitch, we'll engage in some Q&A. And then we'll, you know, then the company leaves and we talk to our members and we say, um, do we think that this company um, is worth looking into further? Um, and so we use a number of criteria that, you know, is not all that different from what other venture funds look like is, you know, what's the strength of the team? Do they have a promising, um, you know, business proposition? You know, have they 
um, done some customer discovery that kind of proves that customers like what they're going to do. Um, you know, where are they in terms of the development of the product or service and so on. Um, so if we decide that we are interested in learning more, um, we will form a due diligence team. And we do our own due diligence. We don't hire it out. So we will look at, you know, what is the company doing? And we have 67 members in our fund um, that come from a whole variety of, you know, different expertise. And so we will um, ask members who have you know, expertise in a particular area, or sometimes we encourage people who have no expertise in that area just to come along because sometimes, you know, you can get too close to something. So we'll form a due diligence team and that due diligence team, um, you know, will really um, investigate um, everything about that company. You know, we'll do reference checks. We will um, asked to go into their data room and look at is all their document. Are they really a real company? Um, you know, do they have customer contracts? Do they have employment contracts? Um, you know, we will talk to customers. We'll ask them to refer, uh, give us references, you know, to talk to customers they might have. Um, we'll deep dive their financial models, their business model, and so on. And at the end of that, will then make a recommendation that we want to invest or we don't want to invest. And if we decide to invest, and then we take that back to our investment group um, and uh, make that recommendation. If we don't invest, we'll go back to that company and, and give them really good feedback as to you know why we've decided not to invest. If we do invest, we obviously get back to that company, give them the good news. Generally, they're delighted. Um, also give them feedback. Uh, and then at that point, you know, we will tell them how much money we're investing um, and uh, we will call the capital from, you know, from our, our fund. Um, but generally, when we decide to invest, particularly if we are going to be the lead investor, then we will negotiate the terms of the investment. So are we going to, um, is it early enough that we'll do a debt instrument like something called a convertible note or will we do an equity investment? And then we will lead a syndication. So generally in a venture fund, you know, one company isn't writing the big enough check to fill the whole round, but then we'll work with that company and open our networks to help them raise the rest of their money. Um, it's obviously in their best interest and our best interest to spend as little time possible fundraising so that they can go back to running the business. Um, and so that's oftentimes very exciting. We'll make introductions, you know, we belong to a number of syndication groups uh, that we can take the company to. And then generally once the company is funded and they've completed their funding, um, we may take a board seat um, depending you know, if we lead or not. Um, but we're always there for advice, mentoring. Um, you know, we will continue to support that company you know, throughout um, the time that they're, they're in our portfolio. And then ultimately, how does the company get out of the portfolio? Well, there's a couple ways. Unfortunately, one of the least preferred outcomes is that, you know, despite a lot of help and support, companies do go out of business. So they may run out of cash, something may happen, and they close. Mm -hmm. um, companies, oftentimes, they'll get acquired. Um, so they may be acquired by a bigger venture fund. They may be acquired by a bigger company. And acquisition can oftentimes be a very positive thing uh, for the company. 
for the entrepreneur and for the investor. And in very limited cases, we did have one company um, that did a reverse merger, but it was like an IPO. So sometimes companies will, you know, will go for, um, you know, an initial public offering. That's very interesting. Um, that, like, you probably define what like a venture capitalist does in his like daily routine, right? And so, for maybe young viewers that want to go into this, uh, maybe tell us some likes and dislikes you have. Maybe some things you like doing in your in your company, and maybe something that you dread. Um, you know, I don't. I mean, I guess what I dislike the most is having to tell an excited entrepreneur that we're not going to invest in them. Mm -hmm. um, and I also really dread um, when I have to work with an entrepreneur to close a company because it didn't make it. So, um, but that is the reality. And I'm sure you've seen the statistics on, you know, I mean, the majority of new startups fail. Um, so that is, it just comes with the territory. Um, to me, the most gratifying thing is you know being able to be there you know telling an entrepreneur yes we're going to write a check for you um being able to open doors for that entrepreneur um you know in order to you know we'll open our network and you know uh, give them introductions not only to other investors but oftentimes to companies that will do business with them and so on um and to watch a company and i'll tell you this in our first fund uh, we had a company and it was solving probably you know, one of the most um, unexciting problems that people would ever think. Um, yet it was an important problem. So, you know, people that, particularly small businesses um, that make their living doing things like delivering flowers, coming to your home to fix your leaky toilet, um, you know, coming to, uh, you know, remodel your bedroom or paint your walls or something. There's a class of vehicles that these companies buy. They're called work trucks. So they they might be light duty trucks, but they oftentimes they're modified for a specific purpose. Your landscaper, you know, comes and they might have a dump truck. Well, that's a truck with a you know with a special body on it to so they come and they dump your mulch or whatever. Um, so it's a very important part you know, of, of our economy and it fuels small businesses. But the process by which small companies bought work trucks was badly, badly broken. If, you know, you were a landscaper and you got in an accident with your dump truck and it was, you know, let's say it was totaled, you know, it might take you five months to get another dump truck. And meanwhile, then you're not servicing customers anymore. And so in any event, this company, came in um, and had uh, kind of a software solution, but also knew that they were gonna have to go sell this, you know, to um, automobile dealers, you know, that did this kind of work. And when they came in and we were one, and I came out of the auto industry, so I happened to recognize this was a big problem. Um, but a lot of other people were like, God, I can't believe that. You mean this industry is that backwards? You know, they do everything by paper and pencil and whatever, but the reality was they did. So ultimately, you know, we were able, it was a lot of hard work. I was flying around the country with this entrepreneur, but we got her funded. And, you know, she started out when we first funded her, she might've been making a hundred thousand dollars in revenue. Over time, you fast forward about seven years now. 
And, you know, she's well over $10 million in revenue. All the major dealers use her. The weight. So now, you know, if, if I'm a landscaper and I get in an accident with my dump truck, you know, instead of waiting five months, I can probably get a new dump truck now in a week. And so she has really revolutionized this kind of old-fashioned but not very exciting industry. And so that is so gratifying. Um, and, you know, she went from a company with three people to a company with 70 people. She's creating jobs. And you know what? She's very gender diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she's got, uh, you know, a great amount of diversity in her management team and her employee team and on her board. And so that's that really, really gratifying. Mm-hmm. And that's like, like the key thing is like how to make a difference on the world and I think that's many of the people, viewers, us, I'm pretty sure we want to make a difference. And I think that's a good way to make a difference. How can students who are thinking about starting their journey in engineering or maybe venture capitalism, uh, you know, start their journey? Um, so, you know, I don't think there's, you know, kind of one prescribed path. Um, the one thing I found when you get to my stage in life is is how varied people's steps are to get to where they've gotten. The best advice I can give is, you know, just to take opportunities, you know, to learn. Um, there are, you know, anybody, I, I think to be um, successful in venture, you need to have some, uh, you want to have some experience. Um, and so students that might want to go that way, um, you know, I would say try to take opportunities to work in, you know, in different areas, kind of the breadth of, um, you know, what you, your exposure will matter unless you're going to go to a fund that is like just software as a service, then go, you know, go work in, in SaaS companies. Um, but then you can also, you know, a lot of funds um, will take on, um, many of them may not be paid, but will take on um, students to, you know, kind of help work, do work with due diligence, um, you know, and to, to actually, um, you know, do a little bit of, you know, the investigation, the vetting of companies. Um, and so I think there's, there's opportunities for, you know, for students to, to be able to, to go that route. Um, but again, the best advice I can say is, um, you know, be curious, take experiences that, um, you know, give you um, kind of a breadth of view, and that uh, will serve you well, you know, when you're making decisions um, around, um, you know, where to deploy capital in the venture world. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Uh, I guess, um, we talked about before though before we started the recording um you thought you were going to spend your career working with big companies and not necessarily <clears throat> sorry i'm making that jump to, to smaller companies um can you can you maybe uh, touch on that like how do you how would you knowing what you know now how would you approach that if you were back in college yeah um you know i i think for myself um you know i don't have any regrets working for a big company because you know, I moved around a lot of different jobs, uh, so there were a lot of opportunities. Um, you know, I often ask myself, should I have left sooner? But 
you know, that's neither neither here nor there. Um, I don't know that there is a right or wrong answer um, for, you know, somebody coming out of college in terms of, of where they want to work. Um, you know, I think a big company, you know, like in my case, provides you um, lots of growth opportunities, but probably maybe a, a, a bit of a degree of security in that you can, you know, kind of jump from one type of work to another, you know, and still stay within a company. But I would really caution any student about thinking that there is such a thing as job security. Um, back in my day, you know, we expected to work for a big company and work our entire careers there. And I think um, nobody today, uh, given what's happened over the last couple decades, believes that that is, you know, so I think you guys are going into it with your eyes wide open, um, you know, that uh, that is not the way things are going to be. Um, a small company, you know, might give you an opportunity um, to have, uh, you know, more diverse, you'll be less specialized because, you know, they have fewer people, so you might have to be able to handle different kinds of work. And so for some people who like a little more variety in what they're doing, they'd rather go broad than deep. That might, that might uh, you know, be a, a good um a good thing for them. But I would have to say, again, in taking a job, and I think your generation, I saw this with my own kids, are much more astute in this. I mean, when I was hiring for a job, I never worried about whether I was going to be a good cultural fit with the company. I mean, I looked at what are they going to have me do and how much are they going to pay me? Um, and, you know, that was kind of it. And I had, I have to admit, um, you know, I only have one kid that's worked uh, of my three that are working in corporate America now. But oh my gosh, when she came out of school, she was like doing research on companies about you know how um, what their culture was like and you know how much opportunity they gave employees and so on. Much much more sophisticated uh, than what I did. And so I would say I think something like that is more important for students. You want to make sure that the company you're going into kind of fits with your values, fits with your style of work. Um, you know, unfortunately, and, and maybe COVID will help this uh, a little bit, but, you know, there are some companies who still had this adage that if you're not sitting there at your desk all day, you're not working. For many people, that is, that's a horrible way to work. It's very restrictive and, you know, so again, that might be one of the silver linings of COVID that, you know, even some of these kind of staunchy companies who thought, you know, out of sight, nobody's working, have been proven wrong that people, employees have been probably, at the data I saw suggest they've been even more productive, you know, working remotely. So best advice I have is, I don't know that it's so much big company, little company, is make sure it's a good fit for you, your skills, and how you want to work. Because if you tend to be a bit more flexible and you're in an overly restricted environment, you're not going to be very happy. And that's really great advice. Thank, well, well, I think that concludes the time we have. But thank you so much, Nancy, for the whole overview of your career, talking about the, the stuff you do in venture capital. It's really interesting. Um, and, it, and it's awesome that you're, also, you're making that social difference. Um, 
through this job. It's something that I, I guess it's sometimes um, it, it becomes secondary in, in the mindset when you're when, when oftentimes like us college kids are thinking about our career. But I think it is something that's that's really important, and I'm sure it's it's led to to you having a more fulfilling career as well. Um, yeah. Thank you for listening to our episode and uh, tuning in, and we'll see you next time on our podcast.